And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drum? Welcome to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie. And we're here to take an intersectional, feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read but you can't forget? We've got that too. Comic books? Nonfiction? It's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious about your favorite new reads. Hello world! Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie. And I am Harmony. And this week we are reading The Dark Descent of Elizabeth Frankenstein by Kirsten White. Harmony, what do you think about this book? My one sentence summary for this book is that it is about a six, uh, seven, a teenage girl, a teenage girl, a girl of some age, <laughs> who girl boss gatekeep gaslighted too close to the sun and lives to regret it, and then also learns the error of her ways. And commits some murders while she's at it. Let, let us not forget that. She murders someone? <laughs> what? She kills Victor at the end. She's part of that whole... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. We're on the same page. I understand. <laughs> My friends, I hope you're really ready for spoilers 53 seconds into this episode, because apparently that's the vibe today. <laughs> the entire ending <laughs> revealed in the first minute. So this book is a retelling of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, and it pulls from basically all of the major players in that novel and kind of gives them a new life and a new identity in this retelling. We follow Elizabeth Lavenza, who is basically saved and plucked off the street to come and be a child companion for the Frankenstein household, specifically their son, Victor, who is unstable and moody and kind of difficult and elizabeth is very grateful for and also wary of this opportunity simultaneously meaning that she throws her everything into being the best companion for victor possible she kind of falls in love with him she's kind of feels like she's almost forced to fall in love with him they end up getting married at which point she discovers that the frankensteins had been plotting because elizabeth was apparently the heiress to a huge fortune this entire time and had never been told and now that fortune belongs to victor because of crappy laws and then in the background of all of this kind of family drama that's happening is the creature who is haunting elizabeth and victor who has disappeared and who elizabeth is trying to hunt down and find ahead of their impending nuptials so that's kind of the the vaguer plot summary but i think harmony's really right that this is this is in many ways a novel about a girl who sees opportunity and chases opportunity and flies really close to the sun and then gets gets burned by all of this and has to claw her way back to humanity i think i agree and i think the big part about why i equated this so much to girl bossing is that elizabeth as a character and we'll get into this a little bit i think with our guiding questions really embodies what as a she embodies as her kind of go-to this has to be my identity to survive what the patriarchy ideal vision for a woman should be and she's okay stepping on various characters throughout the novel in order to enact her perceived survival or or 
or in order to achieve some sort of stability, which for her would be marrying Victor because then she would have the Frankenstein name and she wouldn't have to worry about a lack of funds. Yeah, she has this very deep fear And how, I guess, real or tangible that fear is, is maybe potentially up for debate a little bit. But in her mind, she has a very real fear that if Victor doesn't need her, she's basically going back to the streets. So she does everything she possibly can to be needed by Victor, to to fulfill what she needs to do in order to kind of be this companion for him, based on this perceived idea that she's constantly one step away from being back on the street from being food insecure from being housing insecure and then i think once she starts achieving some of those goals she's willing to push the envelope a little bit more right she gets safety and then she really then she really takes the girl boss gets light agenda to a whole next level and it's like how far can we take some of these machinations and it isn't until she realizes that victor isn't who she really thought he was this entire time that he murdered their best friend, that he murdered his little brother, that he framed their friend, her friend, really, Justine, for for that. That she understands, I think, the ways in which, not just that she's been truly mistreated, but that she has been then perpetuating that mistreatment upon others and starts to attempt to take some actions to rectify that. Which mostly include getting broken out of an asylum and then murdering Victor. Which, like, fair enough, girl. We love a good-for-her revenge plot. (laughs) Maggie, before we dive too deep into our analysis of hierarchy and into our guiding questions, I wanted to invite some tangential points and and themes that really stood out to me in this novel. And the main one is Victor's character and the depiction of, I don't know if disability is the right word, Because I wanted to see if you picked up on this and how you feel about the the characterization of Victor. Because to me, reading this book, even though he is clearly a sociopath in some ways, it's also almost hinted at that he might not fully be a sociopath, that this is a result of his environment. And it's also likely to me reading this book that he is coded as an autistic character specifically. And I want to know if you picked up on that and how you feel about that, if that's true. I must think the sociopath aspect of it was confirmed by the author. That was what she was explicitly trying to portray. And I think you do see a lot of that very explicitly throughout the novel. So I think that the question I have, I guess, to to pose back to you is, was the author potentially trying to also portray autism or was this potentially or was this potentially either an aspect of the sociopathy that she was trying to portray and was it just done poorly or was it done well I don't really know I think that for me what I know about Victor's character and kind of what stood out to me is the ways in which he's a more complicated figure basically than his namesake in Frankenstein by Mary Shelley He's a Byronic hero in both novels, but in this novel, we really see him as being somebody who's genuinely mentally unstable, and he's less polished, he's less sympathetic, he's a lot more, 
sharp around the edges. Whereas in the original Frankenstein, he gets away with so much largely because he's able to kind of keep his exterior shell of being a proper gentleman and a scientist much more intact. So I think to me, what I really picked up on is the ways in which White was sort of complicating that narrative by taking Victor down, I think, a more traditional path of what the mad scientist, quote unquote, looks like, and what would happen if that veneer of society fell off of him. That's interesting. I didn't know that the author had confirmed his sociopathy. I think so, at the very least. Okay, okay. I didn't know that. And I guess it's hard because neither Maggie and I are psychologists. So I don't actually know what the symptoms of sociopathy are other than killing small animals, which Victor does. But to me, the reason why he read as autistic is because he also does not like getting messy. I don't know a lot about autism either. But to me, what little I do know and what little I have seen and read and also what little I've experienced from having autistic friends in my life and other autistic loved ones. There are things like getting super upset about something and not being able to control your emotions when you're super upset or not being able to handle physical discomfort. Also, he has an obsession with perfection, which maybe borderlines on a little bit compulsive. He has a compulsive uh, obsession with perfection and he has all these special interests, his special interests being how the body seems to work. And so I don't know if the author did that intentionally or not, but it seemed like a lot of very specific symptoms that she chose to depict that, to me, read as autistic. And I don't know if perhaps sociopathy as a disorder maybe has some weird symptoms, and maybe that's why she chose to do that. But I found it interesting, and I didn't know, I think to me also sent up a red flag because obviously people who have autism are not more likely to become murderers or anything like that. So I don't know if that was, I do know from the author's note that the author was very interested in the ways that environments shape people and your capacity to shape other people's environments. And she talked about that in her author's note with Elizabeth. So I wondered if maybe that's why she chose to depict some of those symptoms the way that she did. I didn't know how to feel about it, which is why I brought it up. But because it made me uncomfortable and because it was there, I felt like it was important to talk about a little. Yeah, I can definitely see what you mean. I didn't necessarily pick up on that coding the first time that I read it, but I will say that even with the idea of a sociopathy, I also felt some of that discomfort because especially when you're dealing with Is disorders the right word? I don't even know. But when you're dealing with conditions like sociopathy and psychopathy, especially, there's this very, I think, prominent stereotype in the world that you're basically going to be an unfeeling murderer. And I think that Victor in some ways complicates that because he's clearly not unfeeling. It's just a different feeling potentially. But at the same time, I think coding him that way also brings up some of that same level of discomfort of are we playing into stereotypes here? Are we complicating stereotypes here? I don't really know what to make of this. And because this is so far outside of my own experience and research personally, I'm just kind of sitting in this comfort, agreeing with your red flag, being like, I don't know. (laughs) Maybe some of our listeners who are smarter than us can weigh in on this discussion by email and let us know what they thought about the book and whether... What they thought of Victor's symptoms and what they think that the author's trying to do with that or whether it's problematic or what have you. Because we'd like to know. We would like to know from people that are smarter than us because neither of us are 
experience in the subject, but I definitely think that something is there and I would like somebody smarter to, than me to discuss it with me at the very least. Yeah, hop in our DMs. We're always around to talk. Do you want to get into the guiding questions? Yeah, that sounds like a good plan to me. We're queens of segues. Okay, so Miss Maggie, how much agency do our main characters have? As always, a complicated question, but I think in some ways in this novel, maybe more clear cut than in other ones that we've read, because I think that the reality of this is that Elizabeth thinks she has no agency the entire time until she really hits a point where she doesn't have any agency, where she's institutionalized, she's put in the mental asylum and has her entire fortune stolen away from her. And that is, of course, complicated by the fact that some of the privileges she has in terms of being the heiress to this fortune is purposefully kept from her. So some of her agency, I think, is diminished at, at the beginning of the novel in that way physical tangible power that she has is kept from her but i think in other ways because she's got this really perceived fear of being on the street and being kicked out of this family she feels like a victim the entire she perceives herself to be a victim the entire time and doesn't necessarily see other ways that she lords and holds power over other people and uses all of those things as an excuse to step on others. And she's got a really complicated relationship with Justine, who I think has a lot less agency than Elizabeth does throughout the novel, and Elizabeth doesn't really see that. So I think that the answer is that Elizabeth has more agency than she thinks she does, and therefore she ends up abusing some of the power that comes with it until she's institutionalized, until she sees the error of her ways, and until, you know, she she kind of rectifies it with this good-for-her revenge story. I agree. I think that Elizabeth is the queen of girl boss feminism, as I've already said. But I think if we look at the privilege, the privilege hierarchy, the privilege pyramid, right? Elizabeth is a pretty, a pretty woman who she thinks for the mo majority of the novel comes from no wealth. And she was also abused as a child. So these are the big three things. She, she has, she has no income security. And she is pretty, which means that that gives her some agency. And she also is dealing with the significant childhood trauma. But she uses, she gains agency, as Maggie has already said, through manipulation and by trying to buy herself on top. She She's constantly listening. And she also gains agency, as we said in the beginning, by shaping her identity via Victor, which to me comes across as a very misogynistic sort of thing. There's a lot of self-inflicted misogyny that she has to go through because she's a part of this culture and because it seems to her like that is the only way she can gain success. And we clearly see that other women, even though we're in this Victorian time period, who have similar lack of agency, like Justine, who also comes from an abusive and financially unstable situation. And Mary, the bookshop owner, who is the best character in this book, um, who is lower class and has some agency because she's actually allowed to work in her uncle's shop, but is a woman in this society and therefore has no means for owning property or can't be respected outside of her uncle's name. Neither of them go about manipulating or choosing to harm others in the way that Elizabeth does. And the other big thing here is that she 
through her manipulation and through her quest for agency, she ends up harming other people in the name, in order to protect Victor or in order to see that Victor increases his position and his agency, which is problematic because Victor has a lot of agency and also uses it really harmfully. But it's also, to me, a very clear, I am perpetuating misogyny sort of thing. So my next question, Miss Maggie, unless you want to talk about that, do you nod yes or no? I can go off of that for a second, because I think okay. one of the interesting things to me about all of this is or one of the most harmful things that I think really shows to me that Elizabeth it doesn't have a clear depiction of herself and her, her standing is, as you were saying, the lengths at which she will go to further Victor in order to then further herself. And I think that sometimes when we talk about power and power structures, a nebulous thing we don't always talk about is the power of social capital, which can be really hard to define and be really hard to think about. But I think especially in historical texts can sometimes be easier to parse through and then maybe think about how they apply to our own lives. Because one of Elizabeth's greatest sources of social capital here is the power of the Frankenstein name, which the Frankenstein name is landed, it's nobled, it's got all of the hallmarks of being basically a rich and powerful person in 19th century Europe. And she uses and manipulates that social capital specifically as a way to get ahead. And that's a huge part of her agency that she has a really hard time, I think, actually dealing with. And she often uses Victor as that excuse to use the social capital, even though furthering Victor, again, furthers her. So I thought that that was actually a really interesting conversation in this book, is the way in which social capital can be used and manipulated, the way in which social capital can be used to literally cover up crimes when she burns down the house and is able to kind of talk her way out of the whole situation, which of course is also fed into the fact that she's pretty and things like that. But I, I, that really struck me as an interesting nuance to this whole thing. And a power structure, I don't think that you and I have ever really talked about and with that specific terminology before. Thank you. I didn't pick up on that. I also feel like that's also a very feminine sort of way to gain agency via social capital. And I think that's interesting because spoilers for anyone who has not read the book, but if you haven't, why are you listening to us? She ends up finding out that her name does mean something and that she does end up having a lot of money. So that idea of social capital, now that you've talked about it, is important to me because she ends up finding out that she doesn't have to be shape her identity around victors that her identity on its own could have stood strong and could have already given her agency did you pick up on that and what do you think about that yeah i did pick up on that and i thought that that was really interesting because she only finds out about it after the possibility has been taken away from her because again you know crappy marriage customs she's she's basically signed away all of that land and her money to the frankensteins which was their whole nefarious plot and i think is one of the very few things in the novel where i feel where i see that acted out upon elizabeth and i'm like that you know that's messed up that complicates in her current moment this question of agency but i think that it's interesting because i think it also I think her perception of that still is skewed because I think that we then see characters like Justine and Mary who don't have any of that social agency, but who are able to build identities for themselves outside of that. Justine may be in a different way because she is still in a caring role for the family and she takes that seriously, but not to the same 
messed up lengths that Elizabeth does, that's for sure. So I think that those two characters really serve as a juxtaposition to Elizabeth's whole mindset about what it means to have an identity and what it means to have agency and that it doesn't have to be tied to this idea of name and social capital and wealth and power in that sense. Which is then complicated even further by the fact that Justine is murdered basically for her lack of some of those things because she's an easy scapegoat to frame for murders that Victor has actually committed. So I think on that front, there's a really complicated conversation happening there that I think has some historical merit in terms of how people and women specifically were treated if they didn't have the protection of name and wealth and social capital. But others were still able to find moral backbones and identities separate of that, regardless of not having those things. Speaking about the lack of force exerted by the other woman characters in this novel, I want to explore with you perhaps the idea of trauma a little bit more and what that does to affect our agency. Because, again, I'm not a clinician or a psychologist, so (laughs) I don't want to diagnose our girl Elizabeth, but she's she's like very clearly, I don't think depressed is the right word, but her trauma manifested way differently than Justine's did. And I don't know, in, in ways, that, that informs her decisions. And it also, I think this idea that she has that she does not deserve happiness, which I guess Justine also kind of has to a certain extent. Justine doesn't feel like she deserves to marry. That also inhibits her her agency, Elizabeth, in a really concrete way because Elizabeth decides to not marry Henry, who is a friend of hers and Victor's. <laughs> and that would have given her equal social capital and equal financial agency. And she she chooses to not go through that route because she feels like Henry wouldn't be able to understand her sadness in the way that Victor does. And I wonder if that is a a lack of agency thing and, and how we can talk about that or if depression and harm exists somewhere different when we're talking about privilege. I think that's a really compelling question. And I think that as with so many things, the answer is situational. But I think here... I don't know. I feel conflicted about it, honestly, with how it plays out in this novel, because I think on the one hand, I feel for Elizabeth's trauma and I feel for Justine's trauma, and it does play out really tangibly for Elizabeth. But at the same time, I think that the level of harm that Elizabeth is willing to do and the length she's willing to go to increase her agency, I don't know that I necessarily want to tie to trauma. And I think that for me... Part of what I took from this is almost a sense of, I think there's a Russian saying that's like the same water that will soften the, the same water that softens the potato hardens the egg. And I think to me, that phrase I think really sticks with me here because Justine and Elizabeth go through very similar traumas, even though it isn't exactly the same. And to me, the bigger takeaway is how differently people can respond to to trauma. But I think then also, to me, the point of Elizabeth's story in some ways is that we still, no matter what's been done to us, have an individual responsibility to make sure that that trauma doesn't harm others, that it that we're like taking responsibility for our own healing journeys and our own ways of moving forward. And that isn't to say that that trauma needs to be something that 
you invalidate or you push down or you say didn't happen to you, but that personal healing has to be kind of at the top of your to-do list just so that you can live a life that's good for yourself because you deserve that as an individual. And I think that Justine doesn't entirely get there, but maybe gets closer to something like that than Elizabeth does. And Elizabeth, it's funny, you were saying this, and I, and I was like, in some ways, Justine, to me, feels like a very pliant character, and Elizabeth feels like a weapon the entire time. I think that Elizabeth takes her hurt and uses it as an excuse and a reason to hurt others. And while I don't think that pliancy is also the answer to trauma either, and I wish that Justine stood up for herself more and had more ability to do that, in the context of this novel, at the very least, Elizabeth's weaponhood is uh, more abhorrent to me than the than the path Justine goes. But at the same time, Elizabeth's alive at the end of the novel and Justine's not. So, hey. Wow. <laughs> Just got very dark. I guess well, it's this true. Kind of... <laughs> this kind of makes me think a little bit, now that you're talking about this, about House of Hunger, which... I think our the main character of House of Hunger, of course, is no, nowhere near as abhorrent, I think, as Elizabeth is, because most of what she does, most of the harm that she causes is justified. And, and in response to those people that she's harming, having physically harmed her first, you know, it's kind of self-defense <laughs> and is self-defense in many cases. But the, that we talked a lot on House of Hunger about this idea of weakness and I don't think that Justine is necessarily weak, but I do think that now as we're going into such trying times that we're in currently and have been in for as long as late stage capitalism has been a thing, <laughs> and I guess as long as human history has been a thing, when we're thinking about survival, it is important to remember to not be doormats, I guess, because surviving is an act of resistance. You definitely don't have to hurt other people in order to not be a doormat, which is what Elizabeth does until she has her her realization, her come to Jesus moment after Justine dies. And she realizes how much of what's gone on has been a result or at least partially a result of her passivity towards Victor's harm and her willingness to further his agency. And I think I have complex feelings about some of this as well, because Elizabeth is also being lied to about a lot of these things really actively. So some of the decisions she's making are coming from information that she's taking in good faith, but is actually false. So there is another level of manipulation that's being happened that's happening unto her. But at the same time, the decisions she makes in response to a lot of this information, be it true or false are so intense and so harmful that for me, it's really hard to contextualize it in the fact that she's being lied to and still thinks that Victor is a better person than he actually is. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, in the first third of the novel, she finds him. He's basically dying. She sends him to the doctor and then she finds a body in the house and she's she just kind of has to cover it up and be like, oh, he's been grave digging again, like cadavers. This is always what he's been obsessed with. And she burns the house down to save him. But there's already such a high level of tolerance for covering up the truth and allowing really terrible crimes to happen because even though it's not active murder grave robbing is still a crime and taking somebody's body out of its grave and doing terrible things to it is also a crime it it's 
I don't know. It just makes me, it, it gives me a lot to think about in terms of Elizabeth, because it does make me wonder what different choices she might have made if she had the truth first. But I think the point of the novel, in many ways, is the same point of Mary Shelley's novel, which is what makes a monster, which I think is also in many ways the same point of The House of Hunger. And I think that for Elizabeth, one of the answers potentially is that we all have the possibility to be, to be monstrous, but we all have the possibility to potentially come back from that to see the error of our ways. But Elizabeth, I think, is very clearly a character where the ability to be monstrous isn't just a potential in her. It's acted out often, and it's pretty innate within her in terms of her initial gut instincts. But when she's given the truth, finally, she does start making choices that feel more just and more right. And she's able to kind of rectify that and turn that around. I think that's interesting and does kind of play into our discussion of trauma because Elizabeth, even though she doesn't have the truth about Victor murdering people, knows since she's a child since she was a child that Victor is capable of harming people in very dangerous ways, right? He from the first time they meet, he kills a bird a, a baby bird in an egg. And then she she helps him cover up when he stabs his brother, his little brother. And so we see throughout this novel that Elizabeth has always turned a blind eye to this stuff because she desperately feels as though she, when she saw the baby egg, she made this choice because she was in a bad situation in which she was being harmed and she was a child. And this seemed like her only chance to get out of that situation, right? So I think in addition to this idea of monsterhood and what makes a monster and our capacity to be monsters, the novel really emphasizes for me what happens when we when we see when when we see something wrong happen cuz right now we're all in super shitty situations like elizabeth to a certain extent to varying extents right i live in new york city and i am constantly commuting somewhere to get to work so that I can go make money so that I can barely survive. Um, And so is the majority of New York City, right? And if I'm on the subway and somebody needs help or I see a situation happen, it is my job. I have to make that split second decision. Do I want to be late for work or do I want to intervene? And this to me feels somewhat comparable to what Elizabeth's going, even though I'm not running away, right? I, The idea of being late to work threatens my livelihood. But if I choose not to intervene, I am allowing somebody else to be harmed and that makes me culpable. And so I think that that is an interesting concept, especially when we're thinking about monstrosity, especially because many of Elizabeth's actions, even though some of them are active in protecting Victor, many of them are simply allowing things to happen, allowing other things to happen, things that she should know are wrong. I think I think that you hit the nail on the head in terms of, in some ways, this is almost like an if you see something, say something novel. <laughs> because Elizabeth lets so many things slide because she's so scared. But at the same time, I also want to extend another arm of empathy to Elizabeth in that She's a kid when all of this is happening. She's maybe 16 when the events of the first part of the novel are happening. But I think she's eight when she goes to the Frankensteins after spending her young childhood on the streets and being abused and traumatized. And while I still think that 
that's probably old enough to understand right from wrong, especially when wrong has clearly been done unto you. I do also recognize that I am also looking at this from an adult's perspective in terms of understanding culpability and understanding that if I see, you know, Victor Frankenstein when I'm eight years old kill this egg, that that's a sign of something way worse to happen. I can also see it how eight years old you might just be like, that's a really scary thing. Okay, this is just kind of what my life is now and going further and further along that path. I also, I guess I, I guess I have to remind myself right here actively in this moment that a lot of these things that were happening aren't coming from an adult's perspective. They're coming from a child's perspective and from a young child's perspective who would be even more vulnerable if her livelihood was threatened again by going back to the streets. It really does complicate everything. I don't necessarily know that there's a way to justify later any of the later decisions she makes in the novel, but I do think that White did a good job making a very complex character who, even if you don't agree with her decisions, I hope you don't agree with her decisions for the most part, I can see the very complex web of situations and traumas and thought processes that have led her to where she is now, if that makes sense. I can see the map. I understand how we got here. I completely agree. And I wasn't trying, just to be clear for listeners, I wasn't trying to say that eight-year-old Elizabeth wasn't justified. But I do think that's, I do think that brings up the idea of trauma again, right? And I do think that we all carry some sort of trauma and all are more and less capable of responding to these situations, right? We all have these varying degrees, but I think that's an important message throughout the novel. What things are we willing to let slide? And what are we capable of stopping? And how do we think about that when we're carrying so much already? I totally agree. And I think going off of that, sorry, Harmony, (laughs) you just sparked a a good thought in my head. I think that the the tension point for me with Elizabeth, especially as she does get older, is the level of willful ignorance that's happening. She finds out the truth at the end, and there are some things that she genuinely had no way of knowing about that have been hidden from her that could have really shaped different decisions in her life. But then there are other things that are treated like a big reveal in the novel, where I think it's pretty clear that the author is kind of positing the level at which Elizabeth only didn't know about these things because she actively didn't want to know about these things. She was actively pulling the wool over her own eyes to act like things were okay. And again, trying to justify it from this survivability aspect. But there is the will for the willful ignorance, I think is one of the harder parts to swallow here. And also I think really makes me think now kind of coming back to that idea of culpability that you're talking about. I think that that's one of the things that really strikes me as a connection to today and now and life in general in late stage capitalism. Okay, Miss Maggie, are you, do you want to talk a little bit about Frankenstein or anything? Because listeners, I've never read Frankenstein still. I think I say I will every year that this podcast has been alive, but I never do. Quite frankly, it's because I think it's boring in the beginning, at least. So sorry about that. <laughs> do, do you want to talk about that? Or do you want to start wrapping up? Or do you have any other points? I think the one thing that we haven't talked about is the portrayal of Adam in this novel. And I don't necessarily have a ton to say about Adam, except for White makes him an explicitly sympathetic character here, who is actively questioning why he's brought into this world 
who wants a mate but is kind of horrified by this idea of how he's made and how uh, basically a partner for him would have to be made and what happens to Justine. But at the same time, it's very much a novel for him that's all about the desire for family and human connection, no matter how you come into the world. And also coming into the world in a really traumatic way and mostly trying to leave behind a legacy of gentleness. There's so much violence that's assigned to Adam and Adam actually executes almost none of it. So he's painted in a really sympathetic and much different light here than he even is in Frankenstein, which, you know, the original text is literally all about the fact that Victor Frankenstein is the monster and the monster isn't a monster at all. So I did think that it was really compelling the way in which the author here, uh, Kirsten White, really took that to a whole other level and made Adam a very fully fledged, fully formed character who has basically the same human wants and desires as everybody else and is in many ways a much gentler character than 90% of the quote-unquote human actors in this novel. I like Adam. I agree. I've never read Frankenstein, but I liked Adam and I liked his character and he was incredibly gentle. And I like that he gets to live with Mary and Elizabeth after they've, you know, killed Victor or before they kill Victor. But they get to live together in in the end. And I think that's cute. Me too. And I do think that... While it's not one of the main themes of the novel, something, a thread that's tugged in Adam's story is the impact of having violence assigned to you or the ability to commit violence assigned to you just based on how you look, which is a problem, especially in in race relations here in the United States that we really see playing out constantly today and how that's a traumatic, an equally traumatic experience, even though it plays out in a different way than some of the other traumas we see in this novel. I don't have much to add to that, but I agree. That's definitely there. Adam's a sympathetic character and he is assigned, he, he is assigned a lot of violence and that is traumatic for him, especially because all he's trying to do for the majority of this novel, we find out is protect Elizabeth because that's the one person he feels a familial connection to. Yeah. It's sad bean times. Harmony, what are you reading? Wait, 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 before we wrap up, before we wrap that one up, what are you specifically going to take from this novel after we've had this conversation into the real world? I think I'm going to, you know, I probably would have answered this question differently before our conversation, but I think I'm going to think more specifically about social capital and the power that plays out in a more nebulous way in our current society and how that plays into aspects of privilege and power. Because like I mentioned, I think that something that makes it easier to digest in this novel is that in the 19th century, social capital was really rigid and very clear to follow. And in some ways, I think that's still true in our society today, but it's at least a little bit less rigid and I think can be harder to identify. So I'm going to think about how that plays out into my own life and make sure that I'm not using my social capital inadvertently for harm just because I haven't really been thinking about it. Yeah, I think that's probably true for me. I think I'm thinking about that a lot in in my current life, especially living in New York City and with the new job that I have, thinking about in what ways I am perpetuating harm or turning a blind eye and how much agency I have. And I think that this novel for me just gives me a new script almost to kind of consider this after the conversation we've had. Do I have agency in this situation? Can I speak out? Can I bystand? And 
if I can't for some reason, if I don't have that agency, what harm am I going to cause? And then how do I go about fixing it when I do have the agency? So that's my big thing. Now, Maggie, what are you reading? What am I reading? I've been on a really big audio kick lately because I haven't, I've been so, I worked so much overtime this week. I haven't had a chance to sit down. I'm reading Healer of the Water Monster by Brian Young, which is a middle grade novel. Ooh, okay. You're going to have to let me know how that is and whether I should be recommending it to my kids and not children, but you know, my library kids. I am reading Tripping Arcadia, also on audiobook, also at work. <laughs> oh, I, read that, that, I read that last month. Oh, okay. It 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 takes place it, it's partly in the Berkshires, which is very special to both Maggie and I. <laughs> it's another gothic novel, which is kind of fun. <laughs> and not it only, deals with class. <laughs> it does. It very much deals with class. Well, not only does it deal, is it in the Berkshires, it's based in Lenox, Massachusetts, where I worked for a hot fucking second. <laughs> The not, the main mansion that the rich family goes in, I'm still like kind of at the beginning, I think, or the, the more beginning part. It sounds a lot like, what's his name's old estate? Melville's. Melville's old estate, right? What, what was that called? Arrowhead. So it has the same name, but it's the description of the house is much different than Melville's actual house, which is still standing in Lenox, Massachusetts. Okay, so that's not the exact name, though. It's Arrow's Edge that they put there. And I feel ah. I feel like some sort of copyright claim about this. It makes me feel a certain way that it's Arrow's Edge versus Arrow's Head. But okay, it's a, it's a Lenox, Massachusetts house. I see. I see. I want to know more about this author and what landmarks he knows and why he chose these landmarks. <laughs> yeah, me too. Okay, is there anything else we want to let the people know? No, because I can't remember what episode's coming out after this. So it's going to be a surprise for everybody. Oh, you know what? Actually, I think I do know what episode is coming next. I think that I'm interviewing Sarai, Ro- Sarai Walker about the Cherry Robbers next week. And there we go. Okay. There we go. Goodbye, world. Bye. <laughs> Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to our website rebelgirlsbook.club and clicking read along with the show. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at rebelgirlsbookclub on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously.